0: We're going to do a contemplation together now, and I'd like to explain what it means to contemplate and the difference between meditation and contemplation. When we meditate, in the first instance, we want to calm the mind. We want to come to a state where all the waves in the mind are subdued and we enter into a level of consciousness where there is calm and serenity so that the mind becomes capable of looking into depths If you compare that to being in the ocean where the waves are going high, you will realize that when you're underneath those waves all you can see is the water that the waves consist of. One has to wait till the ocean calms down and there's no movement so that one can look into the depths and then we are probably able to see what's at the bottom of the ocean. So same with us. As long as there are the waves of emotions and thoughts, we can't look into depths. We get glimpses, but we can't look into the real depths and to that what's at the bottom. So that's what we try to do in meditation in the first instance. Obviously, we also gain some insight while doing that. What I've explained to you last night, the labeling of the distracting thoughts brings insight. Trying to stay on the breath brings calm. Contemplation is solely geared towards insight. When one gains some insight, there's also very often the result that the mind becomes calm. But the focus in contemplation is insight. What we're going to do in contemplation is we take a subject. I will say it. I'm going to ask you to repeat it after me, that it stays better in the mind. And we use that one subject to investigate within ourselves whether it has a bearing upon our own makeup upon our own experience if it has a bearing upon it we can immediately recognize since it is a traditional contemplation that it has a bearing upon everyone's makeup we're not alone we can then see whether that which we have found within us is helpful, wholesome, whether it creates happiness or unhappiness. And if we see that it creates unhappiness, then we can have a look. How do I change it? Will I have to continue to attain this emotional or mental aspect within me or can I let go of it and we might at the same time recognize that what is universal is also individual and what is individual is also universal now, this is a very important aspect of contemplation to recognize that the individual problem or difficulty that we have, can only be solved in a universal context. As long as we try to solve anything that happens to us individually, we're constantly confronted with our own opinions, our own viewpoints. We're confronted with our our ideas and the solving of one particular problem doesn't really guarantee that there isn't a next one. But when we see that our problem individually is actually a universal one, and we can see the whole of the problem, the universal aspect of it, how it affects everybody, and how it can only be solved If we have a solution for everybody, then our individual problem becomes much less and it doesn't have so much sting anymore. And we can use the solution again and again, because it's always the same solution, universally. So that's another aspect of contemplation. To go from the individual to the universal, and back again, from the universal to the individual, seeing how it applies to the whole makeup of humanity, and how we cannot solve it just for ourselves, and how we don't have problems for ourselves, how it is a human problem, and how it can be solved, but not by removing one aspect of our lives, or adding one aspect. To it. What we need to be um, watchful for in the contemplation is not to fall into discursive thinking. If we contemplate a certain quality within ourselves, a certain recognition, a certain aspect of ourselves, it's very easy to become discursive. That means we're becoming distracted. We need to use the contemplation time to get to know ourselves better. That's the purpose of it. As we get to know ourselves better, we are also able to solve any kind of problem easier. And as we do that, we can eventually let go of these problems, so that they no longer arise. So, contemplation is designed to bring insight into ourselves. I will say the sentence first, you repeat it after me, and after that, I will say something about it to help with the contemplation of it. If you know anything better to help you with the contemplation about it, by all means, use it. What I'm telling you are suggestions how to approach the subject. You can approach it from any angle as long as it helps you to recognize yourself in a more, in a way which is far more accepting and also has a wider connotation, which isn't so limited just by the me, but helps us to be embedded in everything, everywhere. In order to start, we'll put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Please repeat after me. May I be free from enmity. May I be free from enmity? The first thing to do is to investigate whether one has enmity in one's heart sometimes, rarely, seldom or often. How it usually arises investigate whether it's a cause for happiness or unhappiness, whether one tries to justify it, whether one is very keen to let go of it, And then, having investigated all that, to look to see whether one knows how to let go. Can I actually substitute? Am I willing to do that? Do I recognize the great advantage? May I be free from hurtfulness? hurtfulness. Again, we investigate whether we sometimes actually want to hurt other living beings or whether it happens spontaneously. Then look for the reason, the cause. Admit the unhappiness that oneself self experiences. Look to see whether there's willingness to let go, and whether there is a pathway to let go of it. May I be free from troubles of mind and body?
1: May I be free from troubles of mind and body.
0: Now here we can investigate whether we actually can be our own best friend. Obviously the body quite often does not obey, but how about our mind? Are we careful with it? Do we know that we can create happiness or unhappiness through our mind? Do we often forget that that is so? Do we know a way? where we can keep the mind at ease, calm and collected. May I be able to protect my own happiness? May I? Be able to
1: protect my own
0: happiness. Here, the first investigation into oneself is to find out what constitutes my own happiness. Is it dependent upon others, or situations, or is it independent? Have I found true inner happiness, or am I looking? Where am I looking? If I have found anything at all, how do I protect it? May all beings be free from enmity. enmity. What we're doing now is to wish the same for others that we're wishing for ourselves. And if we have found a way to actualize it, we may be able to share that. But again, one of the important aspects is that we don't separate ourselves from others, but feel connected and together, having the same difficulty and the same abilities to solve them. May be all beings be free from hurtfulness. One important aspect of that is that having found within ourselves that we do have that tendency and often or seldom also exercise it, that this is part and parcel of being human and others have it too. Accepting it within ourselves, we can accept it within others. Finding a way out of it ourselves, we realize that everyone wants to get out of it because it creates unhappiness, but often can't find the way. It lessens our judgmental attitude May all beings be free from troubles of mind and body. May all beings be free from troubles of mind and body. Having recognized our own problems, own troubles, it creates compassion for ourselves and others, recognizing that there is no living being that doesn't have troubles of mind or body, or both, at some time or another. So again we feel connected and together, and compassionate. Can we actually arouse that feeling of togetherness, arouse the feeling of compassion? beings be able to protect their own happiness
1: happiness.
0: what we wish for ourselves we wish for others and it also behooves us to know that just as we like to protect our happiness others do too So it's not up to us to disturb them, even if we are of different opinions. If we have found a true way to happiness within ourselves, again we may be able to share it. It may help us to create a feeling of helpfulness, of generosity within us. We're going to do another contemplation together. This one is called the five daily recollections. There are five things that we're going to contemplate, and the Buddha calls them the daily recollections, because he advised every person to recollect these five things every single day. Once we do that, they become part and parcel of our thought process, and we gear ourselves in that direction. The kind of things that we habitually think about, make up our life, and they also make up our life's philosophy. How we see things, how we react to them, and what we wish for. There are four things which are concerned with impermanence, and one with karma. Again, I will say the sentence and ask you to repeat it after me, and then say something about it, so that it may be more apparent what and how to contemplate. Again, it is of the greatest importance to realize the universal aspect of those five things. It has nothing to do with a personal happening. And yet, we need to connect it to what is going on within us. The universal laws of nature apply to each one of us. And as they are applying to us, we need to deal with them. And not try to either pretend they aren't there, which is very common, or try to change them, which is one of the great habits that we have got into in the latter part of this century. Laws of nature are much stronger than our ideas. So, when we see laws of nature applying to us, it's of the utmost importance to see how we react to that. What is the meaning for me? Not trying to deny that they're there, or, by not thinking about it, not have any connection to it? Or, do want to change it? Do I think I can change those laws of nature? And if none of that applies, do I live with them as a reality? Because these, uh, particularly the first four, are concerned with all the things we don't like, the Buddhist teaching is sometimes considered to be negative. It isn't anything of the sort. The only thing it is, it's realistic. Buddha tried to make us see reality. Not with colored glasses on and not like an ostrich with a head in the sand, but actually see it. And when we actually see reality, everything looks the same as before, but within us we have a different attitude. There's a then saying, In the beginning, the mountain is a mountain. Then, the mountain is no longer a mountain. And in the end, the mountain is a mountain again. The middle part is a practice. That's when we try to see things differently, but haven't really made headway yet. And in the end, we realize everything looks the same. It's just the way it is but inside of us we have a totally different view. But the mountain which was there in the beginning is the same mountain that's there in the end. And this is what the Buddha is trying to show us. That everything we know and everything that we experience points in the same direction. It points in the direction where there is Nothing, personal, actually identifiable, there just is creation. There's nobody and nothing that needs to become anything or anyone. And there's nobody and nothing that has to actually climb this mountain. The mountain is there but we just don't know how to look at it. So again, this contemplation is to help us to see reality a little clearer. Obviously that's not going to happen overnight. That's why we have methods. We look at these five delivery collections every single day. And as we do, it does turn, our whole viewpoint turns, and all of a sudden there seems to be a real understanding of what there is. In order to start, we'll put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Now, please repeat after me. I'm of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. the decay. decay. The first thing to investigate is whether it's true. The second thing to investigate is whether we've actually paid attention to that factor. And the third thing to investigate is, if we have paid attention, what's our reaction? Do we dislike the disk decay? Would we prefer if it wasn't happening? Do we make attempts that it shouldn't show? Or have we actually recognized it as a factor? which is inherent in everything that exists. Have we checked to see whether decay exists universally? Having seen it universally, can we feel connected to all that is around us and see the decay as a signpost for the very short time span that we are on this planet I'm of the nature to be diseased or have not got beyond disease. I am patient, please, please. I have not got
1: beyond disease.
0: Again we need to investigate whether it's true. Are we having physical difficulties? Colds, headaches, toothaches, stomach aches hunger and thirst, tiredness, all of those are dis-ease, not being at ease, not to speak about the major illnesses, but just those that make the body uncomfortable, knee pains, back pains, and so on. And by the same token, not being at ease in the mind. Is it a true statement? What does it tell me? What does it tell me about the body? Is it really mine? Am I in charge? Or does it have its own way of acting? And what about the mind? If it doing things I don't want it to do. I am of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. Well, obviously, we don't have to inquire whether that's true. But we have a very important inquiry. Are we living with that truth? Or are we trying? To forget it, or imagining that we don't mind, that we only mind the death of those whom we are attached to, are we willing to look at our own death and accept it as a possibility every single moment. Would we be ready to die today? And if not, why not? This is a very important inquiry. Eventually, it can remove all fear. All that, is mine, dear and will and All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Here we need to inquire again whether this is a true statement, whether it applies to us and also universally. What do we consider mine? There are people and things experiences and feelings, thoughts, and our body and mind. Have all these things changed from the past? Have some of them vanished? Will the rest of them vanish, including ourselves? And what about that, what we call and consider dear and delightful and mine now. How do we feel about that when it changes and vanishes? I am the owner of my karma. This is a consideration that we should never forget. It means taking full responsibility for everything that happens to us, for everything we do, we think, we say, and all outward occurrences. We can investigate whether we are actually taking full responsibility I am heir to my karma. karma. This is the law of cause and effect. And we inherit what we have accumulated ourselves. So if we want a valuable inheritance, we have to make it happen ourselves. Do we remember that when we think and speak and act? I am related to my karma. We can consider that in this way. It's the closest relationship we'll ever have. It's as close as our own skin. It's the one relationship we have to come to terms with. Are we remembering it? Are we aware of it? that we are making the causes and therefore the results happen. I live supported by my karma. karma. The way our lives are functioning, our karmic resultants. Are we aware of the universal aspect of that, which we then experience individually? Or are we still looking for outside causes which we can remove? Any karma I shall do, whether good or evil, that I shall inherit. That brings us to this present moment where we are making karma with our thought, speech, and action. And usually, Have the results very quickly. Are we careful? Do we realize that we are the makers of our own happiness and unhappiness?